And much like what I just described in any president or ruler, it says something substantial about his character and his priorities. And so we looked in uh, the beginning of chapter 3 last week, if you're with us, we looked at John the Baptist and this message of repentance and the ministry of baptism. There was a baptism of repentance. And as we've journeyed through Matthew so far, just in three brief chapters, we've seen Matthew work really hard, as it were, to demonstrate, to point to, to articulate the fact that Jesus is the king. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the Christ. He's this unique descendant who would come to rescue and to rule the people of God. Jesus is the king, and he's bringing his kingdom. That seems to be Matthew's main emphasis throughout the book. Certainly, we've seen it already in the first few chapters. But last week, as we saw John the Baptist, we saw him break essentially 400 years of silence, where there's no prophetic voice heard in 400 years in the nation of Israel. So John's preaching, and his message comes to kind of break that silence as he preaches this message of repentance and commends people to be baptized. And there's going to be a different kind of silence that's broken this morning through Jesus' baptism. Because one of the unique things that we see as we look at the book of Matthew, and you don't really see it, but you can if you pause just for a moment to consider it. As you move from chapter 2 to chapter 3, chapter 2 ended with the details of Jesus' birth. And as you go to chapter 3, basically what's happened is some 30 years have gone by. Jesus has, in quiet obscurity, grown up in the village of Nazareth. We know really nothing about his life other than he was a carpenter's son. He lived and he grew up in a place called Nazareth. And so this moment that we're going to see this morning is really his, his, his first public appearance. It's the king ushering in. It's in some ways, some have even called it his coronation as the king in an earthly way. But it says something significant about his ministry but we know that he grew up in Nazareth. You see in Luke 2, 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, but now he begins to make some noise. And his first public act says something really substantial about who he is and what he's like. Because just like his whole life and ministry, this moment marks a, a moment of startling humility a stunning capacity in this moment as we recognize that Jesus is profoundly humble to be one who comes to be baptized by John. So let's read Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. We'll read that whole section and then try to make some observations. <clears throat> this is God's word, Matthew three thirteen through 17. This is what it says to us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
This is God's word. So Jesus came into the wilderness, like we saw a couple other groups of people, namely the Judean masses came out to John's baptism to be baptized, to confess their sins. We saw the religious leaders come to observe in some ways to use this baptism and John's baptism to accuse John. But Jesus comes for a different reason. But be sure, he comes to be baptized. He came out to the wilderness to be a part of, to take part in John's baptism. So don't miss that. He wanted to join with the Judean masses in the baptism of repentance. And John was understandably hesitant. And so he says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And it seems when you piece together the other gospel accounts, there seems to be some measure of progression in the way that John realized who Jesus was. One of his most famous statements is he saw Jesus in the book of John, written by the disciple John, not John the Baptist, was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But you see this kind of progression of revelation of who Jesus was in John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, because it indicates that John didn't fully know who Jesus was until the Spirit spoke from heaven and attested to that or fell upon Jesus and resided upon him. But when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, we can be sure that John knows enough about who Jesus is that he's hesitant to baptize him. He's like, wait a second. There's no way I should baptize you. You should baptize me. Like, this should be the other way around. Like, this, is, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me as a human being and as a fallen man. So John, as we looked at last week, noted as the greatest man who ever lived by Jesus himself, recognizes the greatness of his need when he encounters Jesus. John recognized he was just as needy as everyone else. He felt the magnitude of his need to confess, repent, and be baptized. There's a couple of things here I just want to highlight from a, a shepherding and just an application standpoint for us. Because we're not coming in here just to understand this passage. It's good to understand it. But I, by God's grace, I want to preach for application. And one of the application parts we look at the John, we look at John the Baptist, is to look at his character and the way he responds when he's confronted with who Jesus is. He's humbled, he's broken. And for us, as we see Jesus clearly, we also clearly see our sinfulness and our need for His grace. Let me say it this way: the more we grow in Christian maturity, the more needy we should feel. The more mature you are in Christ, the more humble you should become. That's why it's so distasteful when you see someone professing to, to be mature, but yet is just marked by arrogance and pride. Because how could it be that someone who gets closer to Jesus remains on their high horse? Right? It's the closer you get to the cross, the lower you become, right? The more we grow in Christian maturity, the more humble we should become. It's not always the case, but it certainly should be the case because we realize how needy we are and how gracious God is. When we understand who Jesus is, the righteous, unblemished king, his life and his works strike us with wonder, but at times even confusion. Like, how could this be, right? You see this a couple times in Peter's life. When you look in John chapter 13, when Jesus, in his example of service, he's washing the disciples' feet. You might remember 
Peter's like, hey, if you're going to wash me, wash my whole body. You shouldn't be washing me, but if you're going to do it, wash all of me, not just my feet. He was confused because we don't have a category for the king serving the subjects. But that was the life that Jesus lived. That was a pattern of his life and his suffering. Even Peter took issue with it. Peter took Jesus aside after he said that he was going to suffer. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Like you, how could it be that you as the king would suffer as a servant? It's confusing to the ways of men. The way Jesus responds to John in this moment almost seems to affirm John's hesitation. He's almost like, yeah, I know, I know this doesn't make a lot of sense, but right now this needs to happen for us to accomplish everything that's right. So nestled in his response seems to be, yeah, I, I get it. This is, this is abnormal, but you need to understand that it's necessary for me to be baptized. In verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't give him like a deep theological answer as to why. He just looks at him and says, hey, the thing that you want to prevent, you need to permit it to happen because it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And so we're going to camp there for a minute. This is one of the most significant parts of this text. In addition to the heavenly affirmation from the Spirit and from the Father, you have this component of Jesus's life and in part his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. And so we're going to talk about that for a little bit here. So the Judean masses we looked at last week came out to John confessing their unrighteousness. When the religious leaders came, because they were confident in and of their religion, Jesus rebuked their self-righteousness. But when Jesus comes to be baptized, he comes to fulfill all righteousness. And so righteousness is a mega theme throughout the Bible. It's a mega theme in the book of Romans particularly chapters 6 through 8. And we're going to camp here for a moment because it may surprise you. It's one of the most important things you could ever understand. Because ultimately, what we see in the Bible is that for us to be right with God, we have to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. Because God is perfect, those who are in his presence have to be perfect because he can't dwell in the midst of sin. And so we have this predicament, and I'm getting kind of ahead of myself, but we have this predicament of our own sin, which I'll get to in just a moment. But as you go back to John's baptism, like we saw very clearly last week, that John's baptism was a baptism of confession and repentance. Confession of sin, which we talked about, means agreeing with God that sin is wrong. It doesn't align with his standards Repentance is, is having a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a changed life, turning away from sin and turning to God. But both confession and repentance assume the presence of sin. So here we have Jesus going to be baptized in the baptism of John, which was a baptism of confession and repentance. So enter in confusion. Because the Bible is very clear that Jesus didn't have sin. He was blameless. He has to be, to be 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, sin of the world. Even that one statement from John grabs all this Old Testament picture of a lamb that had to be offered, and that lamb had to be spotless, blemish-free, in order to stand as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So Jesus is noted as the blameless, blemish-free sacrifice. You see in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is the high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So the question or the tension is, why does the blameless king have to be baptized with a baptism of repentance? One of the ways to answer it is to realize that Jesus' baptism was an identification with his people. So the way in which we look at the cross and we look at the execution of Jesus, and there's part of our minds, there should be, that says, how, like, why? Like, it doesn't seem right that the, the one who is without sin would be sacrificed for my sin. It's the same kind of feeling that we get when we look at Jesus' baptism. Because there's a way in which we understand this by saying his baptism was for the sin of his people, just as his execution would be for the sin of his people. Doug O'Donnell is a Bible commentator said it this way. I'll have this up here. He says, when Jesus went down into the water of the Jordan River, he began to take on our sin, our dirt, all the scum of all the baptized. Whatever drop of water might have gotten into his mouth was his first taste of the cup of God's wrath, which he would drink in full measure on the cross. So this feeling of shock and awe that hits us when we see Jesus dying a death he didn't deserve, we should also feel as we see him being baptized for sins that he didn't commit. That's the mystery of the life and ministry and the sacrifice of the unblemished one, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But it was necessary for Jesus to fulfill every requirement of the law, even this new requirement of the law, as it were, for baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So as I mentioned a second ago, the law requires perfect alignment with the righteousness of God. God requires righteousness. Don't miss that. God requires perfect righteousness. But here's our problem. that We fail at righteousness. All of us, every single one. God requires perfect righteousness, but every single one of us fail at righteousness. And that's the predicament of the human heart. In the fall, the fall of man going all the way back to Genesis 3, which spread to all of us because we've all sinned, death spread to all men because all sinned. And so unrighteousness now defines us, all of us, every single one. And Daniel 9, Daniel puts it this way. It says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So in addition to our acts of clear unrighteousness, we also have the problem of self-righteousness, just like the religious leaders. Like we want to grab certain things we have done, or we might even do today, try to credit them to our account, and compare ourselves in light of others. 
And so we have this problem not only of unrighteousness, but of self-righteousness, where we try to remedy the situation in our own power, effort, and achievements, claiming to have found righteousness in ourselves. And self-righteousness is being convinced of your own righteousness, particularly in contrast to others. Now, if that was the standard, if all we had to do is to find someone that we could say we were more righteous than, we might be okay. Maybe. Arguably. Because you can always find someone who's a little bit worse than you. Relatively speaking. But that's not the standard in the Bible. People are not the plumb line in the Bible. Like your righteousness doesn't have to just surpass that of some other sinner. Like your righteousness has to match the righteousness of God. Now, if that startles you, good. It should. That's what makes the good news so startling, so amazing. Because if you stop just for a moment to think about this last week, the wrong things you did, the wrong thoughts that you had, the ways that you didn't put others first, and the list goes on and on and on, it would take you maybe Five seconds, if you're honest, to figure out there was something that broke the law. Yet God requires perfection. In Matthew 5, Jesus shakes our cage with the way he talks about the requirement of righteousness, and he says this this way in Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious crowd, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these words would have been unfathomable to the Jews. This is an unreachable standard. There's no way my righteousness could exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It would be something like, if you put it in modern-day lingo, compared to excellence, you might be like, hey, I want you to shoot three-pointers like Steph Curry. I want you to paint like Leonardo da Vinci. I want you to compose music like Mozart. I want you to have perfect pitch like Charlie Puth. I want you to sing the national anthem like Whitney Houston. And the list goes on and on and on. If you don't feel the angst yet, I can keep going. But the point is this. When we stop to feel the weight of this requirement, we have to be crushed with conviction, that we have failed at law-keeping, that we have failed at righteousness. We can't even maintain our own standards, much less the standards of God. That's the whole case of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Death not only defines our internal condition, but also destroys our relational position before God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the remedy to this problem. God making a way for unrighteous sinners to be brought back into relationship with a righteous God. We fail at righteousness, but Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Let me say that one more time for those in the back. We fail. You fail at righteousness. But Jesus fulfills your righteousness, his righteousness, all righteousness in your place. He performed everything needed for rightness 
in the presence of God. He fulfilled all the promises and prophecy which make him the only one qualified to be the Messiah. He satisfied all the requirements of God's righteous law. He accomplished everything needed to be accepted. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's com- completely full, to the brim, to the max, nothing lost, nothing left. Every jot and tittle of the law, Jesus fulfilled perfectly, rightly, fully for you so you could be forgiven. For me, as, a, as, as one who fails in righteousness, I might be filled and covered by foreign righteousness, not on my own effort. What our human effort could not achieve, namely the fulfillment of God's righteous law, Jesus did. And the righteousness Jesus fulfills, he also furnishes to us by faith. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You want to know how to remedy the weight that you feel and everything I just journeyed through for a couple minutes, the feeling of brokenness where you haven't satisfied that perfect requirement and you want to, you want to feel relief from that, believe in Jesus. By faith, you can be saved. And by faith, God will furnish to you the very righteousness that you lack. And here's the deal. When we get to the end, in the final analysis, you stand before God The thing you need so badly, profoundly, is righteousness. You need to be right before God to be able to get into heaven. And how do you get right with God? Through the rightness of Jesus, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And Paul says in Philippians 3.9, he says, I've lost everything that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the last comment I'll make about righteousness. There's so much here. I don't think this is a rabbit trail. I think it's related and helpful. But there's this, there's this wonderful thing that takes place in the life of the believer. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Like he, and then he furnishes that righteousness to us through faith. But then he also promotes within us a life of righteousness. This is the way the book of Romans states it in Romans 8, 1 through 4. I want you to capture this language. And I'll read a little bit earlier in the passage. Romans 8, 1 through 4. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, even though we've broken the law by faith in Christ. We've been given a foreign righteousness, so we're not condemned in the sight of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. You have peace with God. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is in the the human frame of Jesus. Listen to this part. In order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us. In us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is so profound. God requires righteousness. We fail at righteousness. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Everything that you need, he's done. And by faith in him, he furnishes righteousness to you. You're considered what you are not, namely righteous. But then also he promotes and he fuels in you as a believer, as a Christian, a life that steadily looks right in the sight of God. So in you are fulfilled the requirements of the law by faith in Christ. That should be said of us, church family. Increasingly so, the righteousness and the rightness of the law and obedience to God born out in the lives of his children who have been given a foreign righteousness for salvation, but then work out that salvation, fulfilling the works of the law. All of this in some measure is happening when Jesus is baptized. He's fulfilling it, and in doing so, he's unleashing that progression of righteousness to the hearts of his people, but ultimately, righteousness that will be fulfilled not just merely in his baptism but all the way to his sacrifice on the cross. Verse 16, and we'll close with these two last verses. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. One of the ways we can understand Jesus' baptism was his baptism was a confirmation of his identity. It was a confirmation of his identity. All three persons of the Trinity were part of his confirmation. Attesting, as it were, confirming, as it were, who he is, what he was doing, what he would do. The son was baptized and confirmed his own kingship by saying he was fulfilling all righteousness. The spirit descends upon the son and confirms both the power and the peace of God on him, on his life, on his ministry. And finally, the voice of the father confirms his approval of and love for the son. As, as God the father looks down on his son, says, this is my son, my son whom I love, and I am well pleased with him. I take delight and pleasure in my son. And one thing that's good for us to remember is that there wasn't any previous sacrifice, nor is there any previous high priest that was truly pleasing to God. Because ultimately, every sacrifice had to be repeated. And every high priest had to be replaced. Not so with Jesus. Not so with him. Not so with the beloved son. Hebrews 10 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
once for all, Jesus became the one-time, full, final sacrifice for the sins and the guilt and the shame of his people. And he forever remains a faithful high priest who doesn't need to offer year after year like those former high priests because he did it once for all when he gave up his own life for you as his son or his daughter. Jesus' baptism was one of many moments of humiliation that ultimately would lead to his exaltation. I want to close with these last thoughts. I've been praying through just how to encourage us as we leave from these truths. I want you to know it is possible to live a life that pleases God. And I would say specifically, the thing that pleases God is to trust in his son, believe in his son. But if you're a believer in this room, if you're a Christian, I want you to understand it is possible to live a life that pleases him. To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to please him in all respects, it is possible by the grace of God. I want to encourage you with that. And we should, we should endeavor to make that the pattern of our lives, to make progress in the faith and to please God with our lives. But here's also what I want to say. In the final analysis, when we get to the end, as I mentioned before, we stand before God. There's a way in which the most important thing about us isn't our evaluation on how we please God with our own life. The question is, and the thing we rest in is the fact that God was pleased with his own son. He's pleased with his son. And if your faith is in the son, by some miracle of grace, he'll be pleased with you. Because he, he doesn't see you. He won't see you. He won't see me in that sense. All my failure at righteousness he sees the fulfilled righteousness of Jesus covering me and you in the end. So there's a sense in which it doesn't much matter how you feel right now about how you're pleasing God and whether or not you measure up in the end because what matters is your faith in Jesus, is your trust in Jesus, is your trust in Jesus as the one who will fulfill that requirement you could never fulfill. And yes, from that, having a passion to obey God. And there's some of you, as I prayed this week, there's some in this world, in this room likely, had friends for a particular reason, could be the way that they were raised, personality. They struggle with a dark cloud of the sense of the displeasure of God based on their performance based on the ebbs and flows of their own failure, lack of obedience, the swings back and forth, I'm okay now, but now I'm not. And that might be you. There's somebody in this room, as I've been praying this week, you need to understand, at the end of it all, your confidence is not found in you. It's not found in you. It never was. It never will be. It's found in Jesus. He's the one, the only one who fulfills all righteousness. Everything you need, he provides. Everything you are not, he is. Everything you failed to do, he did. 
Isaiah 53, 11. I'll close with this verse. It's a prophecy about Jesus some 700 years before he was even born. Speaking of this man of sorrows, another name for Christ as the Messiah, the suffering servant, says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Jesus, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. God, we thank you that everything we need, you provide. That everything we are not, Jesus, you are. And everything we have failed to do and even will fail to do in some measure, you did it for us. Father, we thank you for the soul-securing truth that you made Jesus who knew no sin to become our sin. That we, through our faith in him, might become the righteousness of God through him. May there not be a single heart deceived in this room thinking that there's some other way to be righteous in the sight of God. We know well our failure in righteousness. And I pray, maybe even for the first time, but for many of us, we need to be reminded that although we fail at righteousness, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. And glory be to his name. Glory be to your name, Father. Glory be to your name, Spirit of God. Glory be to your name, Son. Father, Son, and Spirit. And I can't help but think of just the collective voice of the triune God. And the unfolding of the plan of redemption just like in the beginning, as you said, let, him, let us make man in our image. That the refrain sounded very familiar at the point that Jesus accomplished righteousness. Let us remake man in our image. Thank you for remaking us, which you intended us to be through faith in Christ. Help us as your people to be those who find great joy and satisfaction in walking rightly before you, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. We magnify your name, God. We thank you for the work that you've done. Father, we thank you that you, you loved us and sent your own son to pay the penalty for our sin. As we sing one final song, may it be the joy of our hearts to sing with our voices what you've done and how much you've loved us despite how unlovable we have proved to be. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one last song.